we are picking up this morning in Genesis chapter 17, and we are going to look at the entirety of the chapter, Genesis 17, verses 1 through 27, and if you are using a copy of the Church Bible, you'll find this on page 11, and I know that you're going to find it helpful to have your copy of Scripture open and to be reading along with me, Genesis 17, beginning in verse 1, and we're going to read down to verse 27. And before we do, let's again go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to bless the reading and the preaching of his word to us this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for the way in which you have so perfectly breathed out every part of scripture for our faith and for our eternal salvation. We thank you that you have revealed yourself in every part of scripture, even in those parts that uh, often seem so mysterious Uh, You have invested them with your divine wisdom, and we thank you, Heavenly Father, that you have given every word in Scripture for the the benefit of our souls. And so we pray this morning that as your word is read and preached, that you would build us up in Jesus Christ, that you would give us a deeper understanding of all that he has accomplished for us, that you would give us a greater love for yourself and for your Son and for your Spirit, the one true and living God. We pray that we would know power and wisdom and that you would strengthen us in faith. And so we pray these things, giving you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 17, beginning in verse 1. And uh, just a note, the last time we were together, uh, we saw that great stumbling of uh, Sarah and Hagar and Abraham, that messy situation in which... Uh, Sarah thought it would be a good idea to take things into her own hands and give her handmaiden to Abraham to fulfill the promise. And, and as I noted the last time we were together, 4,000 years later, we are still reaping the, the terrible consequences of that um, as Ishmael and his descendants uh, spread across the face of the earth. And now we are picking up in chapter 17, and I would just note, and I will, I'll note this in the sermon, that this is 13 years um, after that last account between verse 16 of chapter 16 and verse 1 of chapter 17, 13 years have passed. And now Moses writes, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, behold, my covenant is with you. You shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. To be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. 
Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or brought, bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, but he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him. He and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall be a father of twelve princes. I will make him into a great nation, but I will establish my covenant with Isaac whom Sarah shall bear to you this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house. And he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael his son was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, uh, I don't know about you, but every time I ever see someone who has the name of someone they have been in a relationship with tattooed on their body, I think, oh no. This is probably not going to turn out good. And then I begin to envision how many people they may end up being with after that person whose name they have tattooed on a very visible part of their body. Praise God that you can now get tattoos removed. Praise God that you can get tattoos tattooed over tattoos that were huge mistakes. Um, And as I think about that and you think about why someone would do that, you think about the reality of... Uh, relationships, human relationships, and binding yourself to others, and being named with the name of others, and bearing the name of someone else on you, showing the love and the mutual care and admiration and commitment and desire that people have to be bound to one another. And where does that desire come from? It doesn't come from just mere evolutionary necessity and, and societal desire to, to, uh, to, to come up with these things that are going to in some way uh, show that we have taken into our hands societal benefits and, and we have in some way decided that this is for the good of us and for those around us. That, that desire to bind yourself to someone else and to be named with someone else's name comes from God. 
Very clearly in the scriptures, that comes from the Lord. And here in Genesis 17, for the first time in God's dealings with man, and specifically in his covenantal dealings with men, God is showing that he is a God who puts his name and his mark and his seal on a people that he loves, a people that, though they are undeserving in and of themselves, he has set apart for himself. A God who has given promises to a people, who has, in a sense, betrothed a people to himself, has entered into an engagement relationship with a people, and has done so in order to get a bride for his everlasting son, Jesus Christ. And as we look at Genesis 17, we may say, wow, that's a lot to draw out of Genesis 17. In fact, um, my family has never had a discussion about the theological significance of circumcision around the dinner table. I get that. I get that. As, as I prepared this sermon, I thought it's kind of strange that I'm excited about preaching about circumcision. I'm excited about preaching about the meaning, the theological and the redemptive historical meaning of circumcision. And yet, anybody who has read their Bible, anyone who has read through the scriptures in any cursory way whatsoever, will not be able to do so without recognizing that a huge amount of what God revealed in scripture centers around the significance of his covenant signs, his sacraments that point to Jesus Christ. Now, as we look at Genesis 17, we have to first understand that it's set in that context of what God has been doing with Abraham. God, remember, called Abraham in chapter 12 out of Ur, away from his family. He gave Abraham exceedingly great and precious promises. He told Abraham that the nations were going to be blessed in him, that he would give him a land and an offspring and a people, and that um, the world would be blessed through Abraham. God gave this one man greater blessings than he had ever given any man in redemptive history. And that in Abraham's seed who is Christ, all the nations would be blessed. And as God is now bringing Abraham on this journey of faith, and Abraham is called to respond in faith and to live by a true and living faith in the God of promise and in the promises of the God of promise, Abraham has hit those trials and those challenges. He has, he has stumbled even as he has pressed on in following God. Now, one very interesting thing to note is that Abraham was called by God at 75, and now he is 99. And he still doesn't have the promises fulfilled. He doesn't have a son from he and Sarah. He has an illegitimate child from Sarah's handmaiden. 25 years, as I meditated on this, I thought, wow, 25 years. I, I, I imagine this, if I was a pastor and I had 10 people, this is a small congregation, but if it was smaller than this, if I had 10 people for 25 years, I think I would probably say I'm not called into ministry. And yet here is Abraham, and he has nothing fulfilled of the promises of God. He has no tangible sign that God has done what God said he was going to do. He has no tangible sign of any fruitfulness. He still looks like barren Abraham. Sarah still looks like barren Sarai. And yet God has been coming and he has been strengthening Abraham 
with his word. The first thing that we're going to see this morning as we look at Genesis 17 is that the covenant God continues to come to Abraham and continues to declare his faithfulness and his covenant faithfulness in order to stir up the faith of Abraham. Because at the end of the day, the biggest thing that you and I need and the greatest thing that Abraham needed was not physical, tangible blessing, but to be strengthened by the God of promise so that the faith that was necessary to follow the God of promise, not knowing where he was going, not knowing where we're going, not knowing what's coming down the line for us, the greatest thing that we need is to be strengthened in the knowledge that God is the faithful, covenant-keeping God, that he fulfills his promises. And notice, as Moses now tells us, that uh, 13 years have passed since Ishmael has been born, And now Moses says, Abram was 99 when the Lord appeared to Abram and said, I am God Almighty. Now, you may be one of those people that have not given much consideration to the importance of God's names. God's names are everything in Scripture. The name of the Lord is everything in Scripture. Um, God has many, many, many self-revelatory names that he uses to explain his character. And very interesting is Abraham has now been waiting for 24 years for God to fulfill his promises. God comes to Abraham with with one very powerful word. He says, I am God Almighty, El Shaddai. I am God Almighty. Now, God is not just saying to Abraham, hey, Abraham, I'm here. It's me, God Almighty. He is not using that name as just sort of a general shorthand. What he is doing is he's teaching Abraham. Abraham has been waiting for many, many, many years. No doubt, Abraham got discouraged. Now, I want to just emphasize this as we have been going through the Abraham narrative. And as I've been meditating on the Psalms this past year, I have been struck afresh with the fact that the majority of the greatest saints who have ever walked the face of the earth spent the better part of their life fighting against discouragement and doubt and discontentment and anxiety. We've already seen that with Abraham. God came to him in chapter 15. He said, do not be afraid. Abraham was afraid. Abraham, though he had all the promises of the true and living God, God had personally come and told Abraham, I am going to bless you in the whole world in all of human history. It's going to be blessed to you. Abraham was afraid. Now, none of us, Have that word from God. Not to that extent. We are blessed in Abraham, with Abraham, by faith in Jesus Christ. We are the children of Abraham by faith in Jesus Christ. But no one had such large promises given to them like Abraham. And yet, he doubted at times, and he wavered, and he grew anxious, and and he, he feared, and he worried, and he couldn't see clearly what God was doing in his life. And so God comes and he reminds Abraham, Abram, I am God Almighty. The greatest thing that you and I need to know as we make our way through all the challenges of life, and there are plenty of challenges, I don't even need to talk to you about challenges in life, I am sure that you know what it is to have challenges. And as we go through them, and as we fight against our own sinful desires, And as we fight against the weakness of our flesh and as we fight against our own doubts and fears and sinful ambition and everything else that's going on in our lives, the thing we need almost more than anything is for God to come to us and say, I am God Almighty. I who promised 
am God Almighty. I will make good on my promise. There is nothing I cannot do. And even though you are nearing a hundred years old, I have promised you that I would give you a child. Notice that the Lord tells Abram that as the faithful covenant-keeping God, verse 2, he says, I make my covenant between me and you and multiply you greatly. And then notice that in verse 5, God gives Abram a new name. Notice verse 5, no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. Now, one of the interesting things in the scriptures Anytime God is doing anything redemptive in anyone, anytime he's doing a work of grace in anyone's life, he gives them a new name. Um, This is the first time that we see that. Names are very, very significant in Scripture, um, especially in in the Hebrew, in the the Tanakh, um, the Old Testament, that names carry rich theological significance, no less in the New Testament. Remember when Simon Peter is called by Jesus, that Jesus says, Cephas, you will be my disciple. You will be the rock. You will be the stone. And when God called Matthew, the tax collector, there's an intimation that he received a new name, Levi. And on and on in the scriptures, whenever God is calling people, he is giving them a new name. And ultimately, very interesting, in the book of Revelation, in one of those letters to the seven churches, Jesus says, to the one who overcomes, I will give a, a new name and a stone written on which a new name is written. That he is saying, I, the covenant-keeping God, the faithful God, have not only not failed to fulfill my promises, but I have already made you a new creature. I have already drawn you to myself. I have already given you a new identity because of my redeeming work. That is what the Almighty God does. That is the heart of the covenant, the heart of of God's covenant promises is the redemption of his people, making them new creatures, bringing them to himself, giving them a new identity, a new beginning, new life, everlasting life, and naming them with these significant names. Notice that Abram in the Hebrew means um, father, and Abraham means father of peoples. Abraham was a father. Abram was a father in his house. But God comes and he says, because of my covenant faithfulness, I am going to rename you to assure you that I am going to fulfill my promises and you will be called father of peoples. Now remember, the only offspring that Abram has at this point is Ishmael. So again, God is giving assurance in the renaming of Abraham that he is a faithful covenant-keeping God. Notice that God also does that for Sarai. And this is the first time that we hear God specifically mention what he will do with Sarai. Notice verse 15. God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. Now, Sarai means princess in the sense of lady or princess in a home. And she was the lady and princess of her home. But Sarah means lady or princess over many peoples. The same way that Abram would now be a father of many peoples, God renames Sarai and says she will be, in a sense, the mother of many peoples, that the nations would be blessed in this couple and in their offspring. Notice that the faithful covenant-keeping God says in verse 16, I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Now, if, if you are not noticing what God's doing. And, and I've, I've pointed this out already as we've gone through the Abraham narrative. The Lord is really simply reiterating the same promises 
that he has been reiterating over and over and over just in different ways. He's actually not saying anything new than what he said to Abraham when he called him in Genesis 12 and said, Abram, get out of your father's house. Going to make your name great. Going to bless you. Nations are going to be blessed in you. I'm going to give you a land. Blessing. Covenant, redemptive, blessing. Redemption is going to come. The nations are going to be redeemed because I am placing my name on you. And God is constantly reiterating these things. Now, I think... If Abraham needed God to reiterate these things over and over and over and over and over again, you and I do. I'll never forget. Um, I'll never forget reading Genesis as a brand new Christian and, and realizing that God was simply just giving these promises repeatedly to Abraham on his journey and thinking that's that's how God works. That's how he works in our life. That. The more we are in the scriptures, the more we are being reminded of things we've already been told, the more we are strengthened in faith. There are two very interesting passages, by the way, where I think the apostles are sort of teaching that very thing. Um, and, and as they are writing to the New Testament churches, of which we are a part, um, the apostle Paul in one place says, uh, I'm writing these things to you, though I know that you know them. And you're like, okay, well, why are you writing them again? And Paul says, for me, it is not tedious, but for you, it is safe. For you, it is safe. It is safe. It is spiritually safe for us to have our minds and hearts renewed in what we've already been told, in the truth of the gospel, in the promises of God, in hearing repeatedly the things that we say that we know. You know, people often say to me when they're seeking to counsel me and they know that I love theology, they almost always preface it with, I know you already know this. I hear that. I know you already know this, Nick. And I'm usually like, no, no, no. I need to hear it. (laughs) I desperately need to hear the same things that I already know. And God is essentially telling Abraham the same things that Abraham has already heard, and he is saying, it is safe for you. The other place, Peter says in his second letter that his departure was coming, and uh, Simon Peter says to the churches to whom he's writing, "Um, I'm writing these things to you, though you already know them, to stir up your minds, to stir up your minds. You know, Martin Luther was asked why, by his congregants, why do you always preach on justification by faith alone? And Luther, in some way, said to them, because you always forget. That's true. Abraham forgot. Thirteen years passed. I mean, think about this. Thirteen years. I've pastored this church for seven years. Thirteen years. Think how long Abraham has been waiting. And what he needs more than anything is the faithful covenant making and keeping God to come to him and say, I'm going to be your God. I'm going to change your name so that you know that you're going to be the father of nations. I'm going to change your wife's name so that she knows she's going to be the mother of nations. I am going to confirm my promises to you. Secondly, God gives a covenant mark. He gives, in a sense, a divine tattoo. And when he gives 
circumcision, and this is the first time that we notice it, he says in verse 9, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised every male throughout your generation. And then the Lord says, this will be for an everlasting covenant, but any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now, you may be sitting there thinking, what in the world does circumcision have to do with me? When I read the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says, circumcision's nothing, neither is uncircumcision, but being a new creation in Christ. Paul wouldn't allow Titus to be circumcised, lest he gave in to the Judaizers who insisted that circumcision was necessary for salvation. That was a perversion that added to the finished work of Jesus. What does circumcision have to do with me? Well, in order to understand what's happening, we have to ask the question, why God gave this bloody, painful sign, this sign of bloody judgment, because that's what it is, a sign of bloody judgment, to confirm the faith of Abraham? And... God gives us little intimations that he tells him that a bloody sign of cutting off should be on the flesh of the foreskin, the male reproductive organ from which generation after generation after generation of those descending from Adam would come and who would, by generation from Adam, have a corrupt sin nature. This is why, it's always a why God does what he does. He doesn't do anything arbitrary. There is a why Generation after generation after generation after generation proceeding by generation from Adam and here from Abraham would have the same sin nature that Abraham had, that his father had, that his father had, and that ultimately Adam had. And what God is intimating is that in order for the sin nature to be dealt with, in order for the sin nature and the filth of our hearts to be cut away, there would have to be a bloody judgment. The sign of circumcision was a promissory sign. God was promising something. And it's very interesting that what God was doing in the old covenant era until Christ comes, he was giving a visible mark. Every Jew that received that sign had an indelible mark that God was saying, you need your sin nature cut away. When we come to the book of Deuteronomy and the book of Jeremiah, the prophet, we read God saying, get a circumcised heart. God makes it very simple for us. He says it was never about external circumcision. It was always about the circumcision of the heart. It was regeneration. It was having your heart made new by the Holy Spirit. It was having your heart cleansed by a bloody judgment. And the question is, what was that bloody judgment? When would a bloody judgment occur that would cleanse the hearts of men and women? And the answer is very clear. When the Lord Jesus hung on the cross, that was the redemptive circumcision in which all the sin of God's people were put on the Redeemer and he was cut away in bloody judgment. Now, you may say, wait a minute. How did we make a jump from a, a, a sign going on the male reproductive organ to Jesus on the cross? Well, we make it very simply through the fact that in Luke chapter 2, one of the first things that we're told about Jesus after he's born is that at eight days old, he received the sign of circumcision. Now, that is supremely important. I noted in our Christmas uh, last Sunday evening in our, our lessons and carol service that the blood that Jesus shed 
in his circumcision was the same blood that he shed on the cross. Same blood, it wasn't different blood, and, and he was the only one that shouldn't have had to receive that sign. But what he was doing was he was being born under the law as the representative of his people. He was standing in the place of his people. He was, in a very real sense, the last Israelite. He was the last man of Israel receiving a covenant sign that said that you need your heart cleansed, though his heart needed no cleansing. It will happen by a bloody judgment. And God says here in Genesis 17, if you do not have this sign, you will be cut off in judgment. You will be excommunicated eternally. You will be cut off from the presence of God. Very interesting to note that Isaiah, in that great suffering servant chapter, Isaiah 53, um, who has believed our report, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He shall grow up before him as a plant out of the ground and shall have no form nor beauty that when we see him we should desire him. And Isaiah says... um, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own ways, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then Isaiah says, he was cut off. He was cut off from the land of the living. The cutting away of the foreskin of the flesh represented that whoever broke the covenant would be cut off from the presence of God. And Jesus, the Son of God, is said to have been cut off when he hung on the cross. He received the judgment of circumcision, as it were, in a bloody cutting away because we have broken the covenant. Because Abraham would break the covenant. Notice what God says to Abraham at the beginning of the chapter. He says in verse 1, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. The true and living God requires absolute perfect obedience. True and living God is not a God that can just dismiss sin. He is not a God that can just overlook sin and can just turn a blind eye to sin. The true and living God is a just and holy God and must punish every transgression. The writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 2. He says, If every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape? And so Jesus, the Son of God, is born under the law in order to keep the demands of the law. And then he becomes a curse for us. And he takes the curse of the law on himself. You know, it's it's remarkable to me that anyone who received the sign of circumcision in the Old Testament wasn't thinking, when will the bloody judgment bringing the blessings of the covenant occur? But that when they saw a crucified Christ, they said, this is ludicrous. No savior of Israel would die naked and bleeding on a tree. No savior. That's not, by the way, that's, that's not the kind of savior we want. We're, we're no better than old covenant Israel who rejected the covenant promises. But God is saying, I am giving you a gospel sign. I am promising that I will cleanse your hearts. I am promising that I will circumcise your hearts. I am promising that I will do that. Colossians chapter 2, I love this. I'm going to read to you the words of the Apostle Paul as he meditates on what has happened to believers. And as he, he brings forth those gospel truths, writing to the New Testament, to a church just like New Covenant Presbyterian, 
not to the old covenant Jews. He says, in Christ, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So that what happened to Jesus on the cross then is applied to the souls of God's people so that it can be said that if you are in Jesus, you have had your heart circumcised. You have been born again. You have had your, your old nature crucified with Christ and you have had the filth of your flesh cut away so that you can serve God in newness of life. Um, we, do not, we do not believe that circumcision is commanded by God in the new covenant. Baptism has replaced circumcision. Um, very clearly, Paul says that in Colossians 2, 11 and 12, that we were circumcised in him, we've been buried with him in baptism, we've been raised through faith, that the two signs point back. That one is bloody because the blood has to be shed, One is not bloody because the blood was shed. They are both pointing to regeneration and renewal. And, you know, one of the things I have sort of grown to appreciate over the years that I'm not sure I did when I was younger is that baptism like circumcision is not just some sort of tradition that we do. It's not this just memorialistic tradition. It is a sign and a seal of God's covenant of grace. It is God saying, I am signifying and sealing my promises to you. Now, it is less visible, obviously, less visible than circumcision would have been. You can't look at someone and see if they've been baptized. Paul makes it very clear that the Jews could look and see who was circumcised and who wasn't. It was evident. You cannot see if someone's been baptized. And yet it is still the sign and the seal that God has given his people. And, and what it does is God is saying he is strengthening us through the sacraments. He is, he is strengthening us in faith through the sacraments. He doesn't just use his word. His word is preeminent, but he doesn't just use his word. I love this quote by John Calvin. Calvin says, The covenant consists in God's love for us and his calling us, not to disappoint us, but to accomplish the things that pertain to our eternal salvation. And our role is to consent to his word with true faith. But let us consider whether we have God's promises in accordance with his requirement. Even though we willingly add faith to it, let us consider whether we have steadfastness and strength not to flinch and waver when a trial comes our way. Steadfastness and strength fail us, for we are so slack that God cannot call us without using many means, and when we do come to him, it only takes a little bit of nothing to lead us astray. It's John Calvin, by the way. It just takes a little bit of nothing to lead you astray from God after he's called you and me. Nothing. Some materialism, some pleasure, some comfort, some status. It's very easy. We're led astray from God over nothing. And so, listen to this. Calvin says, consequently, since God is aware of those vices of ours, he helps us by giving us his sacraments which are to serve as a visible word so that both our eyes and our ears can be instructed. The word addresses the ears and is received by them, but the sacrament has the advantage that the eyes are influenced and we contemplate what we have previously heard. What God was doing with Abraham in giving him the sign was giving him the same promises that he had already given him by word. And he was saying, I am going to send a redeemer who will redeem by his blood. And what God does for us in baptism and in the Lord's Supper is he says, I have sent 
the Redeemer, to fulfill the covenant promises. I have already fulfilled what you are hearing fulfilled, and here are means by which your other senses are awakened and reminded that I have done what I said I would do. What a kind God we have. What a kind God we have, not only to send ministers to preach the word, not only to give us so many Bibles that we can open and read the word, but to give the church sacraments that touch not just their ears, but their other senses to strengthen them because we are, Calvin says, by very little led astray from him. By very little, by nothing. Now, thirdly and very quickly, what ought our response to be to the God of promise who is covenantally faithful and to the signs and the mark of promise that show his faithfulness and his gospel. And we see that God has said to Abram, walk before me and be blameless. Now, as I've wrestled with this over the years, the question is, is God saying here, as I've already told you, I think he's saying, that God demanded perfect legal obedience. That's what he demanded of our first father. That's what he continues to demand. And, and well, we're all going to say, I hope, wow, I'm in big trouble. Because I am very, 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 very far. You know, I always, get a, I always get a kick when unbelievers say, well, no, I'm only human. <laughs> no, you're only unbelievably depraved and wicked. <laughs> oh, well, we're, we're all imperfect. Imperfect would be a nice way to explain what we are. We are the Bible explains what we are as full of pollution and corruption and rebellion and wickedness. In our thoughts, in our words in our actions, in the totality of our lives, in all of our days, we are wicked. Even those of us who have been regenerated continue to fail and to fall. And so the question would be, is God saying, is God just saying, here's my standard, you can't live up to it, my son did. Go to Jesus, Jesus has done everything, don't worry about anything. No. I think what he is saying is, here's my standard, you are going to fail. You have failed. You need to recognize that you failed. My son has done everything in obeying that law, even in taking that covenant sign to himself. Jesus Christ, merited righteousness, is the righteous one, has propitiated and satisfied the wrath of God and the justice of God, has atoned for our sins, has cried out on the cross, it is finished. Therefore, we are to respond in faith and repentance, and obedience. And it ought to be able to be said of us that we have believed the God of promise, the covenant Lord. We have believed what his word and his sacraments have pointed to about his son. And we have lived obedient lives. And people ought to say that person is a true disciple of the covenant God of heaven. That is the proper response. Now, Abraham does that. Abraham, with all his failings, does that at the end of the chapter we are told that that day that day notice verse 22 god goes up from abraham comes down he goes up just like he did in the temple and verse 23 abraham took ishmael his son and those born in his house or bought with his money every male among the men of abraham's house and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day the first time i ever taught him this i said i imagine this was a very painful day for abraham and everybody in his house. 
And you know, I, I think even as I joke about that, um, and by the way, the Bible intimates after um, some of Abraham's great-grandsons tricked the men of Shechem and circumcised them, that they, it took days and days to heal. It was so painful. And, and, you know, I sort of joke about that, but the reality is God was calling Abraham to trust him and to believe him even when it meant doing something difficult and painful. I'm, I am certain if, if we didn't know what circumcision was and we had not undergone that in any way as children, um, I, I am certain that if, if, if we were told, okay, God wants you to circumcise everybody in your house, 13 years old and up, and then give it to all your eight-year-old sons, we would, we would be tempted to say, there's no way I'm doing that. I mean, that, that may seem like an aside or speculation, but I, I think Abraham is walking by faith. Abraham does what God commanded him to do. Abraham is pressing on and believing the God of promise. Even though God has said, I'm going to give you Isaac next year, and you've got to keep trusting me, and you've got to keep waiting, and you've got to keep hoping in who I am, and know that I'm Almighty God, and know that you don't yet have the promises in hand, and your life is not yet what you want it to be. You've got to keep trusting me, and you've got to walk by faith. Now, I think the implications as we close for us are, number one, we need constantly the God of covenant faithfulness to strengthen us in the knowledge of who he is, that he has called us, that he has put his name on us, that he has given us, if you are baptized, he has given you the covenant sign and seal. And that is God saying, I love you. I want you to be mine. And the proper response to all that I have done for you is to continue trusting and to walk in humble obedience. That means putting to death sins, those what the Puritans used to call the darling sins, the sins we don't want to break from. Um, every one of us has darling sins we don't want to break from. And, and God knows them, and he sees them all. And he knows them all, and on Judgment Day, they're all going to be laid bare. And, and Jesus has hung on the cross to break the power of those sins in order for us to go forward in obedience by faith in Jesus Christ. Um, I'll close with this. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, 1, pretty much sums up everything that God is saying to Abraham in Genesis 17. And he says, after giving all these gospel truths, he says, therefore, having these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from the pollution and filth of the flesh. Therefore, having these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from the overflow of filth and wickedness. So that is the proper response for us. As we go from this place today, we go recognizing that the same God who spoke to Abram has spoken to us. The same promises given to him have been fulfilled for us in Jesus. He is going to strengthen us as we come to the table in a minute. He is going to touch the other senses that he has given us with the same truths about what Jesus has done. But the response that we're called to is that we would respond in faith and repentance and humble obedience to all that God has called us to as his people. Let me pray for us as we come to the table. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your great work of grace in securing your covenant with your people. We thank you that you are the faithful covenant-making and the faithful covenant-keeping God, that you have fulfilled all of your promises, that we have added nothing to it, that even our desire to believe and obey adds nothing 
to what you have done for us. And so we thank you, our Father, that you, in your Son, Jesus Christ, have accomplished all that we needed for our salvation, that you have secured the blessings for us, that Christ has become a curse for us, that the blessing of Abraham might be ours by faith in him. And so, our Father, we pray that you would strengthen us now as we continue to worship. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.